Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and we're just going to jump right in today by talking about uniforms. Now, this may be shocking, but I hate uniforms. I rail against the very concept of being told by anyone, anything, to wear anything that's supposed to produce conformity for conformity's sake. I just hate the very idea of it. Because, and this belief formed very complexly during my teenage punk phase, this belief that's very scientific, which is that I think most uniforms are stupid, <laughs> either serving no purpose whatsoever or actively undermining their stated purpose. And to prove my point, I have cherry-picked some examples from the internet that confirm what I already believe to be true. So, exhibit A, the corporate isn't work fun uniform, which was famously satired in the classic 90s film Office Space, where in a classic scene, an employee gets lectured at about the importance of wearing, he remembers what it's called? Flare. Flare. Oh, man. Tokens with these silly puns and stupid cat memes on them that they must wear as corporately mandated means of self-expression to create a fun working environment. Which may have made sense in the corporate boardroom, but in reality, as this film greatly spoofs, doesn't really work that way. Because said employees were underpaid and they were miserable, which made this flare just this dark contrast between this projection of sterile, fake workplace happiness with their employees' dead eyes. It's a hilarious scene, capturing a moment where uniforms get created without any real thought about the boots on the ground, and they actively and tangibly undermine their purpose. Another one, Exhibit B. There's a far more ex serious example. That is the French Army uniform at the outset of World War I. Now, for those who do not know, starting around 1829, the French army started dressing their infantry with this contrast between bright blue coat and bright red trousers, which is very fashionable, is it not? Well, here's the thing. No one thought to change this uniform as they headed into their first modern war, which was a problem, who knows why? because there were some important military developments that preceded World War I, most notably the invention of the long-range rifle and the machine gun. You see, bright red pants were fine in wars involving inaccurate muskets whose smoke clouded the entire battlefield, but suddenly, in a war fought with modern firearms across trenches, y'all, what do you think happened to these dudes on the battlefield? Target practice. France almost lost the war at the outset because of how poorly equipped their soldiers were. Bright spots on the battlefield seen and picked off from miles away. Another great example. Here, the uniform became actively harmful and the hu human refusal to adapt it with changing context. And finally, since that was super depressing, here's just a montage of super ugly sports uniforms. Okay, so... Wow, someone thought that was a good idea. Okay, no, nope. <laughs> That's actually the jerk. Oh, God, my eyes. My eyes, ah, my eyes. It's like the Ark of the Covenant from any of the Jones. My face just starts melting. Do I need to explain why these are all terrible? 
If you, uh, we'll talk after the gathering if you said yes. The Spirit of God does not live in you. No, 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 no. <laughs> These are no good. Now, now, no, no. I will admit that I've come around a bit as I've grown older. That is, I can now acknowledge that some uniforms sometimes might be somewhat not stupid. Sometimes. That with intentionality, uniforms can be designed so that each component actually serves some mission-critical purpose or creates unity and camaraderie against or amongst an organization or a group, which can make them beneficial. I recognize that. But you have to have them made in such a way where they are either tangibly capable of equipping people to better navigate their world, or at the very least that they in some way create that shared purpose and sense of values as this group goes about completing some shared task. Because without either of those components, y'all, we're just gonna end up undermining our goals, failing to adapt, or just plain looking silly. Amen? Rant over. And I start here because what defines a good uniform, actually in a weird way, is going to direct this final week of our exploration of the New Testament book of Ephesians or Paul's letter to the first century church of Asia Minor. Because frankly, Ephesians ends bizarrely. That is, after Paul lays out the household code, which Scott did a great job exploring last week, he just kind of shifts abruptly to concluding with this description of what he calls the armor of God, this spiritual uniform that in Paul's mind, the Ephesians must put on. And it's an odd, famous, and, and actually, if I can be honest, sadly abused New Testament text, perhaps one of the most abused New Testament texts in church history. And that's because this text has been kind of misused in two major ways. The first is for Christian conquest. Throughout church history, this text has been used to justify all sorts of violence in God's name. Christians adorning God's armor before they go off and they kill pagans, Muslims, Jews, indigenous peoples. And I want to be clear from the start, that is heresy. Christ submitted to violence on the cross, the evil of violence, without retaliating, defeating it, by letting it do its worst to him and refusing to play its game. That's our story, y'all, at its most foundational level. Thus, hear me, the tools of violence and coercion are fundamentally not on the table for God's people, period. Amen? So that's the most overt misuse of this armor of God text. However, there's actually another more subtle one that hits a little closer to home for me. And that is how it was used within the tradition that I grew up with. This hyper-charismatic kind of branch of Christianity that was obsessed with spiritual warfare and demons. Now, I'm not telling you that you can't believe in spiritual forces. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't believe in unseen spiritual forces, but rather that this tradition over-focused on such things in ways that were theologically wrong and outright tangibly damaging to real people like myself. I can tell you personally from my experience that this worldview produced terror and shame in me in ways that I can hardly describe. I mean, just imagine being a 12-year-old boy and being turned to, told to fear demons who would possess me if I had even one lustful thought. Can you imagine what that would do to the psyche 
of a child. And beyond that, corporately, this kind of worldview could so easily get warped into control and abuse. I mean, I saw this in the church I grew up in. Question church doctrine. You got a demon. Report a church leader's abuse. Demon. Struggle with addiction. Mental health. Possess any divergent attribute whatsoever from the conformed group. Demon, 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 demon. Are y'all tracking with me? And I also want to say that at the top, because I want you to know that as we head into this section, that on a very personal level, I take this text very seriously. And more than that, I need you to hear me that I believe all such interpretations fundamentally distort what this text is trying to say to us today. They misrepresent Paul's meaning. They misrepresent the purpose of this entire passage. And y'all, that matters greatly. Because what I want to posit for you is that if Paul is describing, in his mind, our uniforms as Jesus' disciples, then getting its purpose wrong will lead us to at best look foolish and at worst use what God intended for good to produce what's antithetical to his character and his good world. I'm talking crusades, shame, and abuse, and y'all, that would be tragic, would it not? Yeah? However, despite this baggage, I also want to posit for you that I believe that this armor's intended purpose, which is grounded in Ephesians' larger context and message, actually carries a powerful message of encouragement that can speak to us in profound ways today. One that I want to explore this morning. So, in order to do so, let's get that larger context of Ephesians in our mind, okay? Recall, for Ephesians' first three chapters, Paul retold Christ's story, how through Jesus, God has begun restoring creation and reestablishing cosmic Shalom, cosmic peace, unity, and wholeness across this entire universe. Building to chapter four, where Paul then turned from this theological discussion about the nature of our cosmos to grounded ethical instruction. Spending the next few chapters exploring how Jesus' story should tangibly transform disciples' lives, making us into this new kind of human being in this world, this new humanity that mirrors Christ upside down way of being human. A people defined by peace, not violence, generosity, not greed, sacrifice, not selfishness. Defined by the attributes of God, not what has broken God's world. All of which, Paul argued in this powerful way in chapter 4, all of which must take root first in one place. This multi-ethnic divine family that Christ inaugurated, this community that peacefully lived together and included all of humanity's diverse peoples, unified under Christ's cosmic lordship. This community called what? You're here right now, guys. The church, the body of Christ, this foretaste of new creation in the world. But Paul was no unrealistic idealist. He understood that such an alien, countercultural community was inevitably going to be tested. And that, I want you to hear me, that's what this section is about. 
not a theology of spiritual warfare, not a call to conquest in God's name, but rather in this greater context, the message of Ephesians, this is Paul exploring how the church can protect its identity, its unity, its peace, its upside down values, as it is inevitably tempted to abandon them by internal and external forces alike. That's what this passage is gonna kind of get us to think about. So with that in mind, let's dive in. We pick up in Ephesians chapter six, verse 10, where Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. So Paul introduces this image of cosmic battle, not against people, but against spiritual evil itself, which he then describes with four key terms. First, there's the devil. This is a complicated biblical figure. You see, scripture holds a very nuanced, complex, and mysterious understanding of evil, one that encompasses all the wrongness within creation, some of which is caused by human choice, sin, selfishness, injustice, oppression, violence, others caused by just this disorder that has seeped into creation through its breaking. A multifaceted vision of evil that's sometimes explored through this figure called the Satan, Hasatan, Satan in Hebrew, the accuser or the opponent, which is a title, not a personal name, that's important. This term for a force, this personification of true evil and its impact on our world. All to say, when you read this term, do not think of a lizard person with horns and a pitchfork running around making us do bad things. That's not what the Bible is describing with it. Rather, what it wants you to get in your mind is the total sum of everything opposed to God's intentions and the havoc it has wreaked upon God's good world. So, first, spiritual evil. Everyone got that? Probably not, but we'll go over that in like some Bible study later. <laughs> Then there's what Paul calls the rulers, authorities, and the powers of this world, which needs its own entire sermon. But for today, understand that Paul deploys these terms when discussing what we would call corporate sin, which is an odd thing for us to think about. Because I think in Protestantism today, most of us have kind of boxed up sin as being something tied entirely to individual choice, correct? Something that I do when I just choose to disobey God. But here's the thing, like with evil, the Bible actually holds a much more complex vision of things like sin. Yes, there is individual sin where we choose to commit violence, steal, etc. but there's also this thing called corporate sin, depicted in texts like Exodus, the prophets, Jesus, and the temple, which highlight how specific sins can, when fed for enough time by enough people, actually begin to seep into the very fabric of a society creating these systemic, almost self-perpetuating sins that are so accepted, denies, disguised, or glorified that they become almost invisible spirits directing our behavior even if we're not conscious of them. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Think about human institutions, corporations, nation states, war economies, penal systems that may have began as good or even necessary, but then they started to demand our absolute blind loyalty, becoming idolatrous, 
leading people to follow them, presuming them that they are right, even as they produce what we would call evil in any other context. It's like this societal possession. Think of things like the Holocaust, Rwanda, the Trail of Tears, slavery. Are y'all tracking with me? For Paul, such powers and systems clearly operate in this broken world. And we get what he's talking about, do we not? And inevitably, he believes that they will demand our allegiance at some point because that's what they do. And for Paul, that's the battle in his mind. It's not some culture war or physical conquest. No, it's a spiritual battle over the loyalties of God's people as evil and its multifaceted representation tries to divert them from being the new kinds of human beings that God and Jesus call us to be. That's why Paul describes this conflict with purely defensive language. Something that we so often overlook, but y'all, this is so critical. Notice, Paul never once tells Christians to launch offensive attacks against those that they perceive to be the enemies of God. No, our orders are only to do what? To stand firm. To remain spiritually committed to Jesus no matter what comes our way. Which we can do in Paul's mind, because of one critical thing, and that is this, is evil actually powerful in God's cosmic story? No, not even a little bit. Y'all, Paul has stressed over and over and over again in this letter that the creator of everything is greater than all forces, that our God is actively reuniting all things under Christ's lordship, that Jesus has already defeated evil through God's power, put on display in his death and resurrection. Thus, as people in Christ, evil holds no power over us. It can break our bodies, sure, but Jesus exposed it to be fundamentally spiritually impotent. Y'all, without death's sting, all it can do is deceive us into becoming like it, period. That's it. That's why for Paul and for Jesus, no matter what evil perpetuates, we can respond by turning the other cheek, by loving our enemies, by sowing peace, by standing firm in Christ Jesus. Standing firm to Christ's ways without fear. Why? Because our God has already stated definitively that evil will not get the last word on us in this world. The battle's already won. Y'all, can I get an amen? amen? Thus, in Paul's mind, we must neither overemphasize evil's power nor, for, in other words, forget Christ's victory nor underemphasize its allure and thus risk being deceived, being wrapped up in the ways that it operates, in its systems, in its power. Instead, we must recognize and confront evil by refusing to play its game in this world, standing firm in Christ's victory and his upside-down way of life whenever evil comes to test our allegiance to go any other way. But how, we ask, can we do such a tall task? Well, Paul continues, verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place 
and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So how do we stand firm? Well, according to Paul, by putting on the armor of God, which is loaded imagery. You see, as an Israelite, Paul's clearly referencing Isaiah here, who described God's Messiah as coming to restore creation while dressed in metaphorical armor of justice, righteousness, peace, achieving victory over evil in this upside-down way, winning through surrender, waging war against war with weapons of peace, etc. Paul's clearly stating that Jesus, in some way, has equipped us with such messianic tools as we navigate this world. However, remember, are the Ephesians Israelites? No. They're Greek. They didn't grow up on the Hebrew scriptures. They don't know the Old Testament like the back of their hand. No. They have different stories in mind from their culture, do they not? This is really important because this imagery would have brought to mind their own myths. You see, there are many Greco-Roman myth stories about gods creating divine armor which belong to themselves. Demigods are these destined heroes who prove themselves worthy. Armor of the gods, which made folks like Achilles and Hercules invincible in whatever battle they faced. So understanding that, I want you to consider what Paul is doing here, because I think this is so countercultural. Is this divine armor given to us by King Jesus only available to the powerful, heroic few? No. Must we be worthy to gain it? Does it make us into gods? No. Christ's armor is gained through humbly recognizing that we are not God, that we are unworthy through the laying down of self-involved heroic narratives about ourselves as we enter into Christ's story and his body, which is bigger than ourselves. It's given by grace from this God who pours out his power and strength freely and equally on anyone who comes knocking, anyone who comes seeking him. Paul's like, have no fear. God freely gives us what we need to follow Jesus in this world. We just need to embrace what's already there. That's the message, which Paul then fleshes out with this metaphor comprised of these two key layers. First, there's the armor itself, which mirrors almost exactly the armor of a Roman legionnaire, their uniform, something the Ephesians would have gotten like that. There's the belt, the breastplate, the helmet. These things protected the vital organs, while their footwear, the caligae, let them hold their footing when pressed. This is going to be really important in a second. Then there was the sword or the gladius and the shield, which was often covered in weather, leather that you could make wet in order to prevent damage from flaming arrows. Ding, ding. Anyway. And the shield was also important for another reason. And that it was, it was the most essential piece of equipment when it came to the phalanx. Romans military innovation, which fueled their dominance in this time. You see, the phalanx required legionnaires to stand shield to shield with precise discipline, working together as one. But when they did that, y'all, this was unstoppable in a time without gunpowder. This formation made this unit of infantry into an unstoppable, impenetrable tank 
that could repulse advances, deflect arrows, and replace wounded soldiers without losing collective defense for even a second. This is what let Rome steamroll the ancient Near East, including Israel. Thus, I want you to think about what Paul's doing here. He brings to mind this incredibly familiar imagery of war, this armored legionnaire and the phalanx that they come together to form. And then what does he do? He turns it completely upside down, tying each part of it not to destruction, but to these totally opposing attributes from the Messiah and Isaiah. He's like, that might be how Rome wins its battles, not you. No, you're going to win your battles in a completely different way. Because in Christ's story, your armor is going to be upside down. In Christ's story, as protection, you're going to wear truth. A conviction that Christ has revealed our universe's truest reality, which is defined by what? Who remembers from a few weeks ago? Starts with an L. Love! Oh my gosh, y'all! <laughs> Love! He says you're going to put on righteousness for protection, the right, equitable, fair relationships that God desires and calls his people to create in his world, to wear sandals of peace, referencing Isaiah 52's messengers whose feast would bring good news, that the Messiah had finally come to reestablish cosmic shalom, peace, unity, wholeness, to make faith their shield, trust of God and one another in the face of evil's arrows, which in Proverbs and Psalms is a metaphor for describing outside pressures that would push on Israel to forsake their God. And finally, they would adorn the helmet of salvation, God's promised rescue of creation while clutching God's word or Christ's story as a sword in their hand, letting the spirit grow within them the good news of Christ Jesus. All together, Paul's like, you got this. Just be diligent each day and putting on truth, righteousness, peace, trust, hope, humility, and you will find the divine strength to remain faithful, to in Christ stand firm together, led by one spirit, united as this impenetrable phalanx, not of war, but of peace in this world. Does anyone want to be that? And with that victorious note ringing, Paul concludes... Verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So, Paul reminds them one last time to pray. For themselves, for him to stand firm as he faces his imminent execution in the hands of Rome. To follow Christ's ways even in peaceful martyrdom before offering a traditional letter conclusion, introducing its deliverer and blessing his audience as Ephesians ends. What a letter. Am I right, y'all? Have y'all enjoyed Ephesians? I think it's profound. And as we walk away from it, I really only want to offer up one final challenge. And that is, I want all of us to leave here and reflect on what it means to stand firm in Christ. 
See, from the start, Ephesians has urged us to recognize that the church must be united and rooted in God's love. It must be shaped by divine peace. It must be committed fully to building his conduits of healing in this world. Which, as Paul reminds us in this final section, is something that will inevitably be hard. Paul gets it. He knows that we'll always be tempted to root out diversity, to elevate human differences above Christ's peace, to divide our loyalty in pursuing power and status, letting evil's arrows shatter our unity and leading us to deceive and hurt other image bearers of God. And that is not how new humans are called to behave. Paul believes that we will all be tempted in such ways at times from these internal and these external, these individual and these corporate forces. We'll all be tempted to forsake our calling to simply be the people of God, shaped by righteousness, hope, mercy, justice, truth, peace, and love. And y'all, in that, our capacity to stand firm is critical because our witness, our unity, our calling, these are what are on the line. Each of us must take seriously that to be such an upside-down people, we're going to need an upside-down uniform. We're going to need to put that on, not as a one-time thing in isolation, but as a daily practice together. A daily practice of individually and corporately growing in our trust of God and each other, of fostering right, equitable, fair relationships, of generously meeting each other's needs and tearing down the barriers of hostility that have divided us and broken this world. A daily practice of beating Building shalom, peace, wholeness, unity, forgiveness, reconciliation of grounding ourselves in and reminding each other of God's truth, that we are loved, that evil has no power over us, that this God will rescue his world, period. Y'all, that's our story. And to be grounded in it, we're going to need to be diligent. We're going to need to hear sermons. We're going to need to read scripture. We're going to need to share life and into the community. We're going to need to pray alone and together. We're going to need to sing praise. And each and every one of us is going to have to do our part to build up the body of Christ in this here cosmos. That's putting on the armor of God each day. But if we do it, Paul says, we will be the kind of people that God calls us to be and that this world needs. Amen? Amen. So where do you need to put on the truth? Righteousness, peace, trust, humility, generosity, unity, love in this season. And where do you need to remember whose story and universe you live in? Mm -hmm.